another episode of The Wall, Behind and Beyond. I'm your host, Philip A. Jones. Tonight, we converse with a powerhouse of expert panelists for a discussion like no other. With this being April, a month designated for Second Chances, we wanted to host a show that addresses the issues related to carceral and sentencing restructuring throughout the United States. A lot of men and women have been incarcerated for far too long, trapped within the prison industrial complex. Both state and federal prisons all across the country hold countless individuals on first-time felony convictions, long after they have addressed the issues which may have led to their being sent to prison in the first place. For this reason, we have brought together a panel of professional men and women who are power brokers in the field of advocacy, activism, mental health, journalism, ETC. These individuals have spent time on the inside or have been closely related to the system in some way or another, which uniquely qualifies them to be able to give a perspective and offer solutions to a problem that cannot be sustained. Today, we are talking about second chances and reentry. With that being said, we want to thank our panelists for joining us. And just like always, we welcome you to the show. The way we do it when we have a panel is we allow each of the guests to introduce themselves, and after they have done so, call on the next guest of their choice until everyone has been introduced. I will call on the first panelist so that we can get it kicked off. Uh, how about Rosie go and introduce herself and tell us who she is? I knew it, Philip. I knew it. <laughs> Good evening, everyone. My name is Rosie Butts. I am the mentor management coordinator for From Prison Sales to PhD. I am formerly incarcerated. I am a cohort 17 graduate, and I am directly impacted as well. I will popcorn Jacob. <laughs> I heard that, Rosie. Hey, my name is Jacob. Uh, I run the P2P house for transitional house, people coming home from prison, stuff like that. Uh, formerly incarcerated, did 22 years, came home two years ago. You know, doing my, trying to do my own business right now. Thank you, Jacob. Hi, my name is Amanda Knox. I am a formerly incarcerated person who spent four years in prison and eight years on trial for a crime I didn't commit. I now sit on the board of the Frederick Douglass Project for Justice, and I do a lot of activism work for the Innocence Project, and I'm so honored to be here. Um, I guess I will popcorn to Lane Pavey. Wow, I'm a little bit in awe right now because Amanda Knox just said my name. I'm a little starstruck. <laughs> That's just crazy to me. Anyway, uh, my name is Lane Pavey. Uh, I uh, did federal time. I got out in 2011 and returned home to Spokane, Washington. Uh, since then, I've built up a couple of reentry programs. We have transitional housing. We have supported employment and supportive uh, uh, housing case management services. We have peer support. And we recently licensed my uh, private practice into a behavioral health agency. Um, so we focus on serving individuals who are just involved in diversion or returning to our community from our Washington state prisons or federal prisons. And um, gosh, we, we, uh, I'm, I'm an EMDR certified therapist and consultant. So I am a, a licensed clinical social worker and I am the supervisor for our clinicians as well as our directly impacted peer support staff members. Thank you for having me. And I think I remember Nikki's name. I'm gonna popcorn to her. All right. <laughs> Great evening, everyone. I'm excited to be here. My name is Nikki Ellis. I am the Chief Opportunity Officer for Forward Focus, which is a community-based nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting justice-involved families and communities. Our mission is to unlock and expand 
um, critical resources, information and support, not just to give a second chance, but the best chance to successfully move forward. I am also formerly incarcerated and a P2P 23 cohort. Good evening, good evening. Uh, pleasure to be here. Philip. thank you, thank you for the invitation. It is just amazing to be here with uh, this group of individuals. I was just telling some people, uh, I'm on a number of like second chance month events, but none with this lineup, you know, this lineup here is just amazing. So, so honored to be here with you all. Uh, so Stan Andres, I am a formerly incarcerated individual with three felony convictions, uh, sentenced to 10 years in prison as a prior and persistent career criminal, was told uh, in my early 20s when I was being sentenced that um, I had no hope for changing the decisions I had been making and was gonna be caught in this revolving door of incarceration. Uh, fast forward some time, I'm now Dr. Stan Andres, an endocrine scientist and professor at the Mecca, Howard University College of Medicine, um, also formerly uh, a professor at Johns Hopkins Medicine and, and also a visiting professor at Georgetown Medicine. And that wasn't quite enough. So I took the hustle across seas and uh, I'm a visiting professor at Imperial College of London. So I, I didn't quite live up to those expectations that that prosecutor placed on me those many years ago. Um, I'm here with my little man, uh, Mr. William here, Prince William. Uh, my three-month-old son, who is actually named after my dad, which I, you know, hopefully we'll get a chance to talk a little bit about who uh, was the motivation for my book, From Prison Cells to PhD, It's Never Too Late to Do Good. But pleasure to be here. Looking forward to the conversation. Hello, how you doing? Thank you for the invite. First of all, uh, my name is Fatima Eltrice. I have a nonprofit organization, Laura's Haven. I do domestic violence placement, reform re-entry programs, and I am a mentor for From Prison Cells to PhD, as well as a previous graduate, and I am Justice Impact. And I'm gonna go ahead and pass it on to Brock. Uh, uh, like I was saying before, I'm honored to have been invited to the panel of uh, such distinguished people from around the country in the field of criminal justice reform and re-entry and a host of other things. I'm presently incarcerated, as you can very well see, so from the difficulties that we're having on and, and getting me in. But my my specific job is to uh, create an atmosphere and to put prison staff out of business. My job is to get people out of prison and keep them out of prison, is to create change agents like Philip through my rep program and the Black Prisoners Caucus and African American Betterment Association and a host of other organizations that we've created here in the state of Washington doing uh, my incarceration. Um, some of the, the people on the call, like Lane Pacey, I've worked with in the past, and I look forward to working with a lot of you other guys in the future. Hopefully, um, we will have a conversation that traditionally black men have in a barbershop and uh, get to the the root of some conditions that keep our community in the condition that it's in. Okay. All right. Thank you, Brock. And thank you for everybody who introduced themselves. So let's go ahead and kick it off uh, by having a panel each defined. I would love for you to tell the listeners what the term second chance means to you in particular and also what it means to you in general. 
Um, because sometimes when people hear the term second chance, um, they have a, a thought in their mind of what they perceive it to be. So I know that everyone probably has a unique perspective of that and what it means to them uh, particularly. So whoever wants to start, uh, please define for the listeners what the term second chance means in particular and also what it means to you in general. Rosie? I saw her hand raised. To me, uh, I feel like second chances means an opportunity for me to be able to look in the mirror at myself first and say, Queen, you deserve a second chance to look past all your past failures. And in general, it means to me um, that someone's going to give me an opportunity. Dr. saw something in me, the potential in me that I did not see in myself. Dr. Andres gave me a second chance. And that's why I'm able to be here today, to be able to, you know, help other people and show them that they have potential and they deserve the second chance just as well as anybody else do. Fatima. Thank you. Thank you for that, Rosie. Um, uh, the next person, whoever wants to answer that question, uh, please feel free. This is open right here because I know everybody has a perspective. So who was the next person that would like to speak and answer that question? Yes, thank you. Well, the term second chance to me means that you are seeing a person for who they are at the present moment, seeing not seeing their charges, but seeing the changes that they made, the accomplishments, the skills, and the qualities that they have. A second chance in general would be giving somebody the tools and the resources they need and giving them a chance at redemption and a chance to become a contributing member of the society from prison cells to PhD, opened the door for me to many other doors. They believed in me and they definitely gave me a second chance. And I feel like everybody deserves that no matter what. And I'm gonna go ahead and yeah. Brock wanted to answer. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm gonna uh, piggyback off of that first answer. I think that second chance begins with the individual. Uh, the individual must first come to grips with the reality of their own wrong, wrongness of his past behavior as early as they possibly can in their incarceration and begin to take steps towards change, sincere change. Often second chance is equated with being released from prison. But if the individual has not made that decision to change, his or her release is just the second opportunity to return to the past behavior and back to prison. And so I think that second chances begin with, with, with each one of us. A lot of us who were incarcerated before probably really, really understand that. And it first began with us deciding that what we did was wrong and that we needed to change. Absolutely. I agree with you, brother. Um, there was someone else who had their hand raised. We got Amanda. Yeah, so the only thing the only thing that I would add to all of this is that speaking from the perspective of someone who spent prison in time for something I didn't do, I would have to say that like the the way that society works is the vast majority of times people aren't even given first chances. Mm -hmm. As soon as an accusation of some kind of criminal um, event took place, suddenly you are defined as this horrendous crime and not by all of the context that is surrounding 
the um, the actual events that took place. And very often what happens is that when someone is accused of a crime, even if they did actually commit that crime, so much of their humanity is stripped away from the get-go. And they are absolutely defined by a horrendous act and not by their whole humanity. I met so many people in prison who were very, who were guilty of crimes, but whose humanity had been stripped away. And so for me, my, like my taking away point of all, from my experience has been that we're talking about second chances. Like, why can't we talk about first chances? The fact that like people are still human beings, even when they are accused of crimes and they spend time in prison for those crimes. So um, that's crazy because it sparked some thoughts in my mind. You talk about second chance. And then when you think about how the system is functioning, how it's set up in society, whether you're innocent or guilty, you're always going to be looked upon when you're incarcerated as someone deserving of a second chance. But you don't even fit that category because you shouldn't be there in the first place. So I thought that there was an excellent point that you raised. And um, as we go along in the discussion, I'll probably circle back to that because many people that's listening, um, if they were innocent, I'm quite sure they would be saying, what do I need a second chance for? So I'll go to... Um, the next question, so we can get into the heat of this discussion. And so look, um, it's getting ready to get heated. It's going to get better. Yeah. Um, I have a hard time with the word second chances. Um, I think the problem for me was when I came out, I had done my time. And um, I felt like that had paid the debt. I felt like that is what had, what had balanced the scales of justice. Um, so, you know, ironically, the organization I created is called I Did the Time because I wanted to organize with people who had experienced the same thing I had. We, we served our time and we want to get back into society. We want to get back to working. We want to be productive members of society. We want to contribute. We want to be seen. We want to have voices. Um, we want to have a say and not be shut out. And uh, to me, second chances um, is, is put in a, a way that it's like someone else has to give it to me. And for me, second chances had more to do with what I, me giving myself a second chance to fight here, to fight for my rights in society, to fight to be heard and, um, and to get that job or, or work towards whatever I wanted to, that my dreams weren't gone. And it was me giving myself that second chance. Yeah, so appreciate that. Uh, my thoughts on second chances is that at the moment, the, as a society, we don't really believe in second chances. I mean, once people are considered criminals it's like we we want to believe in society that there are good people and there are bad people and you know people who have been convicted of criminal charges or convictions are you know bad people and it's it's really hard as a society for us to believe that they deserve second chances we we've, we've moved now to a place where we have a little bit more compassion for certain types of people in prison in terms of like, uh, you know, folks suffering from uh, drug addictions and, uh, you know, certain types of crimes and even crimes of folks. There's, there's a big push now for, you know, innocence projects. But I think for the large majority, like it's very hard for society to feel that someone who committed a violent crime or who was, you know, committed a crime that is more serious and dangerous. We don't have space for, you know, folks that have committed those crimes. And, and really, you know, I speak about that in, in my book, From Prison Cells, a PhD, It's Never Too Late to Do Good. 
And the whole idea of it's never too late to do good is that, you know, there is, there's not good and bad people. There are people that make, you know, poor or bad choices. Uh, but as Amanda was mentioning, you know, they, they still have their humanity. And as humans, we have the ability to change and we are dynamic people. So I really just love this conversation and, and looking forward to diving in a little deeper. Yes. Nikki. Nikki, go ahead. Okay. I I think second chance means to me is just an opportunity to have a near clean slate, an opportunity towards redemption and to move forward and to be able to um and to be able to have the same freedoms and opportunities as others have and an opportunity to work towards just being the best version of myself and to and allow people to feel like they don't have a duty to um, give me a lifetime punishment. Thank you very much. And I, 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 uh, I wanted to go to the next question because it kind of hits all what Dr. Andrews was saying. Um, because you got two segments of society. Some will never believe that you can uh, redeem yourself, no matter how good you do, no matter how many uh, constructive things that you bring to the table in a society, they just feel like you can't overcome it, whether guilty or innocent. And once they label you, it doesn't matter that you're found innocent. Uh, they still don't believe that you're a good person. So I think that's the uh, closed-mindedness of the society at present. But that's why groups like ours, that's why communities like ours, we have a large responsibility to continue to change the narrative. And so in the next question, it says, does anyone on this panel truly believe that we are a country of second chances? Or would you say it is just a concept not yet arrived at? Let's see. Rosie got her hand up. I feel that we we are. April is second chance month, so I feel that we have arrived. And we are on the on the front lines as returning citizens in this fight of second chances. And we are doing that by having different partnerships, connections, and organizations out on the front lines to rehabilitate, to, to heal, and to give chances to. So for me, I'm going to say yes, because again, if Dr. Andres did not see something in me, I wouldn't have these certificates that I have behind me. I wouldn't have the job that I have today, nor would I have the relationship of family, true real family that I have today, because my family disowned me when I went to prison. So, yes, second chances are here, and it's going to be up to us to continue to make them happen for others. Thank you. And then you got You're welcome. Thank you, Rosie. Uh, who else, anybody else's hands up? You got Fatima and Amanda with their hands up. Fatima. Thank you. I'm going to agree with Rosie and say that we are on our way. I do feel like they don't understand the depth of it and all the areas that need to be covered and things that need to be done before they even come home. Mental health, there's just so much, so many areas that need to be covered. And I feel like the help they give now is generalized and it's not individualized and this is what they need. And I'm gonna go ahead. And then Amanda. Yeah, I don't want to be the one who's just the pessimist here, but I do think that there is this very, very deep challenge where like ideologically we are dealing with this idea that like people are not just static in time. They are not just the same person for the rest of their life, no matter what happens to them. And at the same time, I think that there's a problem of attention 
that people just want to think that the first time they ever hear about a person, whatever context that is, that is the thing that defines that person. And they live within that box, within that framework that they first ever heard about that human being. And a lot of times that's the first time they become a non-anonymous person when they become a part of the criminal justice system, when their name is suddenly on court documents. And people want to think, okay, I have that person in a box now. They are a criminal. And I think that we have to push back against that impulse to simplify reality, to make it very black and white, and to acknowledge that there is growth and human potential beyond those boxes that we've created for ourselves. Absolutely. Thank you for that answer. What I'm hearing is two sides of a paradigm. And each of y'all that answered the question was absolutely right. In a sense of, in particular, take this for instance. If you had got a second chance and you have been released from prison and you are living a successful life, you are contributing to your community, and someone helped you to get there, you have indeed had a second chance. But if you're serving a long sentence that you can't do, but yet you've changed your ways, you become productive inside and out, and that you are... Uh, being that message that you bring, but they won't let you release. And so on both sides of that token, you have second chance. Does it exist? Does it not? For some or for all. And so I think we what we need is a paradigm shift. So I thank you for each perspective. And I would like to continue. I just, I just want to add the position that, uh, you know, fuck everybody. <laughs> I just want to ask if we could cuss on here because... The way we've done it is we've built such a strong community in Spokane around, uh, you know, your your net worth is your network and how we are creating the opportunities. We are creating the opportunities with the employers, with the colleges, with the um, housing providers, with the private landlords. We are talking our way into every circle. We are navigating every back alley deal that we can possibly do to make sure when people come out to my community, they have those opportunities. So we are we are continuing to move up and keep doing that, that systemic change, that fight, because we are not a country of second chances. The people in power don't want to give us chances. So we have to create our own communities and our own pathways, you know? And, and, and so I just kind of said, fuck them a long time ago. We're just going to build the world that we want to see um, and create opportunities within our own community. And that's why I love being on a panel with so many you know, doctorate level, you know, highly educated, formerly incarcerated people who are creating opportunities in their community. So when people come out, it's like, I got you. Come, come hang out with us and we will hook you up. You can have a good life here. Not because anyone in the higher ups gave this to you. It's because we created this, we created this pathway for you. And when you come out to my city, we're going to, we're going to have things for you that if you want it, right. If you want want to be successful, the opportunity is there. I like, I like what Lane is saying. And that is the concept that I believe in. You have to create that, that atmosphere for people to have that ability to spring back and make a life better than what they had when they went in. It's all about coalition building. Oh, yeah. Did I see Jacob's hand go up or no? Yeah, yeah. No, no. I, I, I was just thinking, uh, can I talk? You know, go ahead. Okay, no, no. Cause I was thinking, cause like, I think the main problem with the government, like, because I mean, the government does a lot of second chances, right? Because, you know, we got hella grants. Because I know P2P has, gets hella grants from the government. So, so, so they definitely have, have have some kind of degree of a second chance, but it's the vetting process which which I think the government has a problem with, right? They really have no idea how to vet who to do it and who not to give it to. You know what I'm saying? So, like the problem is, as soon as they give it to somebody, he messes it up. Or he does something stupid with it. You know what I'm saying? Like now they blame on everybody. 
The same thing, like, like the, the life program we had, we had in Maryland. We had like a, a thousand lifers went through it, not doing up, going to work every day, coming back. They were literally at life in prison, going to work every day, would come back to the prison cells and go back and, and sleep in their cells. These were people who had life in prison, never going home, would do it every day. They did every day for about 20, 30 years, easily. Two or three guys went out there and killed somebody. They shut the whole program down. You know what I'm saying? That's the, like, like, they, they really need to get that second chance. They need to be focused more like on hiring people to vet. Like you need to hire criminals to vet other criminals. You really do. You know what I'm saying? You can't hire somebody who's never been in the hood to tell you what is what who, who what's going on in the hood. It's not gonna work. I can't you can't be like, you know what I'm saying? How was California? I ain't never been to California. I can't tell you what California is like. You know what I'm saying? You need somebody who's been there to tell you, like, oh no, no, we can't give it to him. He's gonna smoke that money. You know what I'm saying? But this guy right here, you know what I'm saying? He's doing good, but if we can give it to him, uh, right. we, can, we can save some lives. You know what I'm saying? I wanted to. I wanted to comment on what Jacob said because, you know, I'm from Maryland. You know what I'm saying? I got 31 years, and exactly what he said is true. I came in in 1990. I was in the Maryland State Penitentiary. Them guys that had 30, 40 years served in their sentence. They was going out to work release. They was going to the streets every day, working hard, coming back to prison. And that was why the parole system was effective back then. Because if you can go out to society and work a job, earn a living, and contribute to your family and your community, then the, then the, then the parole board, was it was not even fathomable that they could deny you parole. And so that's why we're trying to change policies in Maryland to bring it back to that. And I think that we're on our way to doing so. So I appreciate you, Jacob, for pointing that out. I didn't even know you was from Maryland. And so that's good because he's telling the truth with that. But it, uh, Dr. Andrews wanted to piggyback off that. Yeah, I mean, to a couple of things I was just said. Um, mm-hmm. You know, do we believe in second chances? And I mean, I, I would say your story says that we we still got work to do because you know why are you still in? You know what I mean? To the folks that have influence over uh, your case, and hopefully we could get this type of recording, and hopefully they're paying attention to all the great things that you've been doing. Like, why, why are you still in it? If we believed in second chances, you would have been out. You know what I mean? So uh, that is proof in of itself, in my opinion, um, that we still got work to do. That, you know, the great work that you're doing and, and, and we can't see that what you're doing for society to, to have you still inside. Um, so that's one thing. Uh, the other thing to tie into what uh, Jacob was just saying for me, and also I think what Lane said and what some others said, um, we see it at P2P. And to Jacob, Jacob, we we get we get a little money, but you know what we see it as at P2P is we're creating like a Black Wall Street. And for you know for those that aren't familiar with Black Wall Street, it was like you know White Wall Street, the regular Wall Street wouldn't let Black folks in to getting money, so they took it upon themselves to like, we could create this ourselves. And to your point, Jacob, about us having to vet us and like we are the best ones to kind of vet it, like that's what we do at P2P and we've become trusted to do that. And now we've navigated, um, you know, getting into some spaces of, uh, you know, like getting funding and things of that nature. But it's, it's the Black Wall Street model. It's like, we can do it ourselves. We don't need other people to tell us how to do it. We will tell our own people how to do it, um, and 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 elevate our own people, and that's that's kind of what we're doing in this call right here, and that's what P two P is kind of all about. 
is, you know, they're not giving us second chances. So we will give us second chances and we will make those opportunities for each other. But yeah, society as a whole, we're not there yet. We're not at second chances yet. That's what I'm talking about. That brings me, I want to bring Brock in right here. I was going to save it, but I want to bring Brock in right here because what Dr. Andrew spoke of is something that he was going to, you know, shine a light on at the end. But I think it's a great segue here. Uh, as time is uh, running out, and we don't want to let this thought escape. So, Brock, uh, if you can hear me, I need you to break that down, what we were talking about, with that as all right to what Dr. Andrews was speaking on. Uh, Dr. Andrews is speaking the gospel, and the gospel to uh, a chorus of people who I hope are listening, because we have the power to move people in and out of prison ourselves. Um, we've seen how they work here in the state of Washington. When I first came to the state of Washington, there was 21,000 people in prison here. Because of the, the coordination between us in prison and the different various groups on the streets, we've changed legislation. We've created programs like REP and I Did the Time and, and so on and so forth. And we've worked closely together with, with both. And we've created an atmosphere where the politicians had to listen to us because our voice was so huge. And we have now we have clemency projects and 6164s and blank cases and all of these things. And so a prison uh, um, situation that started at 21,000 people in prison is now at 12. We've almost cut it in half. And they're not coming back to prison because we work from both inside and outside to ensure that they stay out and they not come back. Can't save everybody, can't stop everybody from coming back. But those numbers, that 21,000 to 12,000 is a huge, huge number. And as Lane Payton knows, uh, most of the people in the movement have a really, really close relationship with the governor and the people who make the decisions in the state. And so if, 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 if Philip and I were Washington State prisoners, there's no doubt in my mind that we would have been out 10 years ago. But we can replicate what we've done here in Washington just with this group alone and move Philip out of prison or whoever we want to move out of prison because the people on this call have enough influence to influence the, the decision makers to make that happen. I think it's just a matter of, of us deciding that we need to get together and do it, finding the time. Um, Philip, for me, he came to my rep program mm, what, six, seven years ago, he met uh, Dr. Andres via uh, no vest. And so it was, it, was, it was that bridge that got him to this point. Now he's at a precipice in his, in his sentence where if we, just the people on this call alone, use the resources that we have at our disposal, just our human resources, we're not even talking about money. Just our human resources influence with the people we know and our ability to write and call and mobilize, there's absolutely no reason why we can't get him out of prison. I love that. Hey, Brock, you hit that on the nose. Is there anyone who would like to make a comment about what Brock has said? Or if not, we can go to the next question. Is there any hands right there or what? Yep, Lane's hand is raised. I just wanted to officially say hello, Brock, and like let you know that we're working on Thomas Butler's case right now. You know, Tommy. 
he's been in the county jail for two two years during the pandemic and he's been waiting uh on resentencing he's open for resentencing and the prosecutor uh very core prosecutor in in spokane still wants him to do all 62 years and he was sentenced as a juvenile so like we're out here fighting this completely irrational thought belief system of the courts and you know trying to push on our democratic you know blue legislature and and governor and we cannot get them to budge kind of like what jacob was saying someone goes and screws it up and they get all this political heat because somebody murdered somebody or something else and we lose all the momentum that we've been trying to do and then of course the thing the courts are always relying on is just that like well this is the statute this is the law you know so he gets he gets to keep doing 62 years like it's so messed up. It's such a hard fight. But I want to fight with you, brother. I hear you, and let's do it. Absolutely. Thank you, Lane, for that. Uh, is there anyone else? Well, um, what I want to say, just briefly, along with that, is what Brock said about everyone on this call is enough. Because each one of us knows somebody. Each one of us can get somebody on the phone. Each one of us has a sphere of influence. And so if we was to come together and decide that we want this person out. We have enough in terms of resources and credibility that we could approach, you know, not only the prosecutors, but the governor himself and talk about and bring the person's name up and say, how can we resolve this case? Uh, this person should not be in prison. Um, and I'm pretty sure um, that that's just from talking to them, not, not necessarily putting out any money, not necessarily hiring any lawyers, doing any of that, but actually coming together with all of our force and saying that we believe that this person deserves to be set free. And so that's the initiative that we're about to start taking. We're going straight to the source. Uh, we're not going to go through the whole song and dance of the court system and all that anymore. We're going straight to them and say, how do we resolve this case? What do we need to do? And so keep that in mind. And uh, I will definitely be reaching out to you guys again in an uh, effort for us to start doing uh, certain collaborations in terms of uh, helping people get out. Can anyone describe the challenges that we face as a nation trying to do away with long sentences or passing sweeping laws which prevent courts from giving out time beyond 10 years for anything? And what I mean real quick is that a lot of industrialized countries around the world in the modern age, they don't give out no more than 10 years for anything. Here in America, we're still giving out life plus this and 200 years and 250 years that people can't even live. You know, what is this? This is this is befoolery. You know what I'm saying? So uh, what does anybody think about these challenges that we face as a nation and how do we change this? Brock has his hand raised. Yep. Go ahead, Brock. I, I think the decision to do away or not do away with long sentences is often based on the moment. Whether the public believes that some horrific crime has occurred or politicians decide to retreat to their safe uh, but ineffective cocoon to lock it to lock them up and throw away the key. Um, to, to quell those, uh, um, the public's retributive impulses. But long cities is not going to go away until we change politicians. Politicians go with a whim. And so until we decide to, to come together and choose the politicians that we want to make the laws, they're not going to go away. Because every time some crime happens, they're just going to say, okay, what we will do is, is we will pass legislation to make sentences lower and lock them up for longer periods of time. So, again, the power goes back to us. We have to mobilize across the country, as we oftentimes do locally, and 
change the politician. Elect people like Shawana in New York to the councils and to state houses and and to city city committees so that we can change the laws. That's dope. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm talking about, brother. Um, okay. We're running out of time, and I don't want anybody to get off the call before we get to the reentry segment. Right. And so I'm going to fast forward because I don't know who can stay over, and I don't want you to be burdened by that. So in terms of reentry, so, uh, what would you call or consider to be well-balanced, all-decompassion reentry programs? In other words, what are all the elements necessary for one to make it after reentry with a smooth transition to be successful? Amanda, did you want to go first? Uh, sure. And yeah, I, I don't want to ruin or take anybody too much of anybody's time, but I was just about to say that, like, for me, it comes down to a paradigm shift. Like I grew up in an environment where I very, very, like I grew up in a very privileged environment where I thought, I genuinely believed that it was just good people who stayed out of prison and bad people who went into prison. And it was that simple. And think, and the, uh, the question about what is the point of the criminal justice system seemed really clear to me. And as I lived alongside people who were innocent and guilty alike, I realized that it's way more complicated than that. And what we really need to be asking ourselves is what is our justice system for and how are we dealing with social problems and social ills how do we mitigate harm while also maximizing benefits and maybe that doesn't have to do with anything that has to do with punishment it has to do with meeting the needs of the people who have been harmed in the various ways by how society has allowed these social harms to happen in the first place yeah, that was, that was, uh, so I could try to share quick words, and that was uh, very powerful, Amanda. I agree. Um, I was going to just say a couple of things around, uh, you know, when we think about the criminal justice system as, as criminal legal system, as I like to call it, not much justice for many people. Um, there's nothing, it is all about mitigating harm for who is believed to be, uh, you know, the victim of the crime, right? But there's really no process to mitigate the harm and trauma and issues of the person who committed the crime, who oftentimes, as Amanda was pointing out, has needs that need to be addressed. And instead we just punish instead of trying to address those needs. So that's that's a big part I really appreciated that. Um, the other part that I wanna add is that we as a society, the paradigm shift that she, Amanda and others were mentioning is this like our media is just so obsessed. You know, I, I like to call it like poverty porn. There's, we're, we're obsessed with like punishing people. And we're obsessed with long sentences and we're obsessed with all these. You think about the amount of uh, law and crime TV shows and movies that are out there. Like there's, you can literally Google it. There's thousands of them. And it's because we're obsessed with this idea of punishing bad people because there's good and there's bad people as Amanda was mentioning. And I mean, until we get away from that type of thinking, of good and bad people and punishing and, and the poverty porn aspects of it, of it's good entertainment, you know, we, we have a lot to go. So we really focus on changing the narrative at P2P and helping us tell our own stories. And I mean, for us, that's how we think 
we, you know, we accomplished that paradigm shift that we're talking about. It's us changing the narrative. That's right. That's what they, and I love that what both of you uh, said. Uh, and that that is one of the reasons why uh, we came up with the nonprofit organization that we have, uh, Inside Outside Consults Inc. Is because we believe that, that we got to change the narrative. We got to reexamine how prisons function. And it starts with policy changes. You know, most of the individuals who are incarcerated, probably 85% of them have some type of drug addiction. And so shouldn't we focus more on, you know, giving these people the counseling and the resources that they need to... Um, you have 60 seconds remaining. Um, ...their drug addictions? Shouldn't we um, address people's trauma, the things that cause people to have the mental health issues that cause them to commit crimes? We should focus more on these type of things. So, you know, if anybody's interested, that's the type of work that we're doing uh, with my nonprofit. I wanted it to be something effective and impactful that could change uh, people's conditions overnight. Um, I got 30 seconds left. I'll be back. Um, I'll call back in right now. Um, you have 30 seconds remaining. If anybody would like to make any comments on the other side, please feel free to do so. If we get to some stuff, it's cool. If we don't, the conversation is still powerful. I'm back. Uh, Lane, did you want to contribute to the conversation? I did. I just wanted to throw in there that, you know, in our organizer trainings, we always talk about how Mark said, when the poor get hungry, they'll eat the rich. Um, we go back and forth as organizers, I think, all the time around this concept of, do we need to change the paradigm of other people in power, or do we just need to overthrow the entire system? And uh, I really like the idea that, you know, they have made 100 million Americans impacted by mass incarceration, the criminal legal system. Uh, there's 370 million or whatever it is Americans. And it's a big percentage of us. And if we really did uh, bind together, you know, and, and do this work and get people into elected official positions, you know, us criminals could just take over the entire government. And I Damn. think that should scare people <laughs> into changing their paradigm. Or I think it just means that we have a long road ahead of us of, of working together uh, to, to get that going. Because if they keep oppressing us, if they keep prosecuting us, if they keep putting it, if they keep locking us up, um, eventually there's gonna be so many of us that we have the power to fight back. And I would really like to fight back. Love that. I love that fighting spirit. And that is one of the reasons why I wanted to do the podcast. I'm tired of talking about it. I'm tired of, you know, everybody complaining about it. I'm like, let's roll up our sleeves. Let's get busy. You know what I'm saying? If you want something, you got to go out there and fight for it. And so we already know the problems. We understand the solution. But who's ready to do something about it? It's, it's multi-pronged approaches that you have to take. And each one of y'all on the call specializes in certain things. These are professionals on this call. How come we keep allowing the people who have no idea what it's like to be, you know, under the under the oppressive uh, situations that many of us find in our lives? They don't understand it. How can they make laws for it? And so I'm asking, I'm challenging each one of y'all to let's come to the table and figure out what is our next move going forward. Because if not, we're going to keep having these conversations. The podcast for me is to raise awareness, but also to take action. And I knew that once I met you guys. Once we started talking, we get to know each other. We see what the intention is, what the motivations are, and what we can all bring to the table. I knew that change will start, and I see it happen every day. And so let's keep that up, and uh, let's stay committed. That's it. And then, Philip, as you've been talking, Brock raised his hand. Uh, I think 
I don't think it's a lack of imagination, but I think we underestimate our power. I think it was done in the state of Washington for a long time, and then once we realized what our power was and we started flexing it, we got results. And I think we oftentimes, uh, um, black people, poor, uh, um, white people, or oppressed white people, or Hispanic people, we underestimate our power. We underestimate the power of sticking together, moving in one direction as a force. Um, I grew up in Chicago where uh, the Italians and 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 uh, um, Polish and Irish people had a machine. Daily ran a machine for the time that I was born until I was almost 30 years old. And that machine rolled through Chicago and got people elected every single time, no matter what. And so I think as a group, as people who are pros at what we do, we underestimate our power and what we can do nationally, not just in the state of Washington or New York or New Jersey or Baltimore or Houston, Texas. Nationally, I think we underestimate. We can build a, a nationwide reentry program that would be acceptable to every institution in this country if we really put our minds together and do it. We've got an enormous uh, um, uh, amount of mind power just in this call alone that I think we can move mountains. Dr. Andrews came out of prison and became a doctor. Lane Baby got a PhD. Everybody on this call are accomplished in their own way. And together, I think we should accomplish a lot more if we pulled it all together. That's deep, That's deep. Anybody else want to say anything before we move forward? I love that. I love the way it's going right now. We can talk about that alone. And that's a whole show uh, because it's heating up. Because everybody is realizing that's what it's all about. It's about bringing about change and not being a spectator. You know what I'm saying? Because we don't need to spectate. We already know what's happening. So anybody else want to speak on that? They can feel free if they want to add anything else. All right, look, because I know uh, people got to go. I know it's East Coast people on the fall. Um, I don't want to uh, go over because uh, I like you guys' contributions. So is anybody on the call can wrap up how second chance and reentry go hand in hand. Um, whether it's restorative justice, uh, whether it's not programs in prisons, uh, whether it's things to address people's tra uh, collective traumas and policy change. You know, I wanted to try to wrap that up in a bundle of from second chance to reentry. What does it take for an individual to be completely serviced? So that when they return to society, they have almost everything that they need to be successful, bar none. Anybody want to challenge to take that? We got Fatima. <laughs> I'm not going to go deep into it, but I would say that we need to give access to resources and connect them to the resources and really deal with all the things that, you know, even if it's from the past, that cause them to get to where the point they're at now and give them support. That's why I love from prison cells to PhD, they give you so much support and guidance and like they help you believe in yourself. That's what we need to do for people. Give them the belief in themselves again and connect them to all these things that they need instead of just throwing it at them. Thank you so much for that. That was powerful insight. Uh, with that being said, you know, I feel like each and every one of you guys uh, played a major uh, part in the work that I do. Um, I'm also a graduate of P2P cohort 23. 
Um, I also um, did a keynote address for the organization, and I love what they're doing over there. The brother, Dr. Andres, and everybody who makes that team what it is over there, I want y'all to know that I see what y'all doing, and I can't wait to come out and be a part of that. And all the other organizations on this call, we're going to work together. I'm there for you. Anytime you need me, just call. And so um, I wanna I wanna let you guys have a uh, a closing remark. Um and then I'll do an outro. Uh so if everybody can tell us how to reach you, um what it is that you do that you need that you need people to know about, what's your website, uh, or just you know, talk to us about, you know, the work that you've been doing. Philip, so for that last question, you have people who've raised their hands um, since you've been talking. Um, so Jacob, um, Lane, and Nikki all have their hands raised to comment on your on your last question. Mm-hmm. Let them answer, yeah, and then we'll go. Yeah, no, no, I, I'm just back on what she was saying. I mean, I mean, a lot was just information, right? Cause like, cause like, cause I just recently came home from doing 22 years. So, like, I mean, a lot was just, like, like telling people, like, it's not a big deal. You can ask questions, like, you know, like, like, showing, like the cell phones are different. A lot of stuff is completely different than what it was in the '90s when I was home. <laughs> and like it's just, it's just letting people know that like when people come to the transitional house, I let them know like you know what I'm saying. Just ask the questions a lot of time. We can YouTube it. We can figure it out a lot of times, right? And it's, it doesn't mean you're crazy or you're stupid. Because I'm telling you, a lot of people I met coming out of prison that I met on the streets and everything, you know, they won't YouTube it or they won't look it up because they start thinking like that they're stupid or, or they don't know. Because I know what a hashtag was. I ain't even stunt. Somebody told me hashtag. Some I ain't know what button that was. <laughs> but at the same time, I, I, you know, that's what we need. We really need people to, like, to, like, like, to people know to, like, you know, and train them better. Because they don't train you at all in prison when you come home. No technology. You know, like, we, we, we had tablets. We had no, we had an Xbox. That was it. That was the extent of our technology. You know what I'm saying? They really, they, we really need to find some way to, like, to train them and get them ready when they come out. Because the whole world out here is technology. The cell phone right. is, is your world out here. You know what I'm saying? Like, we didn't even train them how to use it. Like properly, so when they come out here, they won't look crazy. And, and like, even a job vacation, you got to go online for. You can't even go in the store no more and fill a job vacation out anymore. You got to go online and do that. Like, we really need to train them to how to do that now. I mean, we do that at P2P. I mean, but like, we really, it'd be better if we could get it to them before they get to here. Like, before they get out, they already know, understand. That's all. I mean, that's what I was trying to say. And that's a good point, Jacob. And that's what we do. We start while they're still in. And that's a part of the reentry program that I've been a part of called Release Readiness. Uh, Brock can speak more about that because um, that falls under his uh, umbrella of rep. But in Release Readiness, uh, we don't wait until the day you step out. You know what I'm saying? In Release Readiness, we mentor our way through, through classes that instruct people on what what led them to where they was, uh, what does it take in values, in terms of values to get you out of that thought process and mentality. And it goes all the way to how to open a bank account, how to build credit, how to talk to an employer, you know what I'm saying, when you go for a job interview, learning about cell phones, how to dress for an interview, and, and how to tell people that you understand what their company is about and that you take a pride in wanting to be a part of it because you've already studied it before you left prison. So there's so many different ways. Um, so I'm glad that you brought that point up, brother. That was a powerful statement that you made. You know, you're absolutely right. All right, who's next? Nikki, did you want to go real quick? Yes. So it is my belief that um, healing and reentry is often not achieved in a straight line. You know, it can take years and it takes a lot of detours around the way, you know, along the way. 
And so I believe that we need innovation. Um, we need to meet people where they are. And a lot of times I've seen that a lot of reentry programs uh, service people within the first 12 months of release or their conviction. And so I think that um, we have to be innovative and we have to have uh, mobile reentry resource units and services to really meet people where they are. Uh, to go directly inside the community and really help those people who experience those challenges and barriers. Because I believe that a lot of times those resources are hidden. And to be able to uh, effectively connect those people and build those relationships um, with people so they trust and know that um, you're providing effective and meaningful, impactful services, you have to meet them where they are and harness the power of community around them. I just want to say absolutely, Nikki, you know how time and reentry to process what you've just been through and what you're going through because you have to keep hustling. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people, you know, it didn't hit me. We didn't see it hit a lot of people how much how much trauma you've experienced um, from incarceration alone, let alone everything before it. Uh, until you can settle down. So the processing and the meaning making doesn't happen until three to five years after being out, you know. Um, but I just wanted to say, you know, solutions and reentry, absolutely. It's peer support, it's navigating, it's getting the jobs, it's the access to opportunity, it's the restorative justice, it's the trauma healing. But at the end of the day, even though my programs provide all of those things, I know that people are not poor because they don't have enough resources. They're poor because they don't have any power. And that's what excites me about organizing with groups and, and all of you guys is because if we're really going to do this work to, to give enough to reentry, like the question kind of was posed, we just have to build power. Um, we have to educate people, like Jacob was saying, we have to do uh, everything necessary to get ourselves a seat at the table and set the table. Um, and so that, that, it doesn't matter what we do as far as resources and connections. If we do not build power, we are never going to change a thing. Uh, so that's what we got to do. Oh, I, I mean, in terms of, of final remarks, um, I just want to advocate very clearly for um, the release of Philip Alvin Jones. I mean, we this this the ability to do what you're doing is just incredible and i mean uh for me um i'm gonna continue pushing i know when i first met you years ago now um you know good five years ago now um i've been on the team to uh free philip alvin jones and, and get you on the streets um so that's that's the first thing i want to say in, in closing remarks is like anyone that has influence and uh, I love the approach and I'm gonna take that approach myself is to go to people that of influence in Maryland that I know uh, in the governor's uh, realm um, and definitely push that. Um, and, and in closing remarks, I, I think I love the power aspect. I, I would just say we need to, uh, we need to be at the table formerly incarcerated people. Um, there needs to be more of us in positions of power uh, you know, one slight thing, I think resources lead to power. I think in order to get power, we need resources. So, um, but I, I, I couldn't agree more. And 
I just want to say that I was, you know, honored to be here amongst such a powerful panel. And thank you, Philip. Thank you, Erica. Uh, thank you to your whole team for putting this together. And um, I'm hoping everyone can continue to collaborate and um, looking forward to staying connected with you. very accessible people can find me on twitter at amanda knox on instagram at amama knox i'm happy to talk to anyone and i'm really honored to be here thank you so much to erica for organizing all of this my i am also very very moved and i hope that philip really really does have a chance here and that this is moving forward like these are real human beings that are behind bars who deserve life and we have no right to take it from them so I'm really, really grateful to be here. And thank you so much for the invitation. Honored to be a part of this panel. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Amanda. We appreciate you. And uh, you, I'm waiting for a to follow. I just want to say, I just want to 
say uh, thanks to my brother for inviting me to this panel. Um, it was extremely enlightening. I've got my uh, my uh, co-defendant, my best friend on the line as well. She was in prison, uh, in federal prison a long time ago, and shared that experience, and I thought it was important that uh, she sit, on, sit in on this panel and listen, because it was an important conversation. Uh, I appreciate all everything everybody said, and I hope that we can carry this forward. And at some point, um, maybe Lane and I will invite y'all to Washington to some huge event so that we can uh, coalesce around that. Again, thanks a lot, and I appreciate being here. And then, uh, Philip, Nikki's got her hand raised. She's the last one. Nikki, go ahead. I just wanted to say I am privileged to be on a panel with such a powerhouse of talent of people. It is amazing. It's empowering and it's encouraging. And it just reminds me, it reinforces the fact that I'm on the right path, using my gifts and talents to be able to um, do what my assignment is. And I just want to say thank y'all so much for having me. That's a wrap, everybody. Uh, thank you so much for being here. Um, I will definitely be in touch with everybody. Um, Y'all know I got some more heat coming. You know what I'm saying? So don't be surprised when I come to your inbox again because we're going to keep it moving. You know what I'm saying? And uh, good night to everybody. You know, Um, the work continues. You know what I'm saying? Where there's people, there's power. Philip, this is Rosie. I would just like to say thank you for this amazing honor and opportunity to be a part of this podcast. And it's an honor to meet um, the ladies and um, Brock as well. Um, thank you for shouting my husband out. He has also been in for 30 years on a uh, dope charge, 3.8 grams of crack cocaine. And we are bringing him home just as well as you. We are bringing you guys home. So thank you for shouting him out. Thank you guys for being on this panel. And I can't wait to talk to you guys again. God bless everybody. Much love and respect, my sister Rose right there. Uh, much love and respect to everybody on the panel. Fatima, you know what I'm saying, Nikki, uh, Lane, uh, definitely Dr. Atrice, uh, and Erica, you know, for a phenomenal job. That's how you build. Like, hit me up. This was a wonderful discussion, and I look forward to barbershopping it up a little bit more next time. Okay. That's a wrap, yeah. You know, if anybody stays on, that's cool. I'm gonna, I got to get ready to go so I can pick up my Ramadan sack. But um, you already know, it's, it's any time. That's it. We're we on. We love you, Philip. We love you so much. Keep your head up and stay strong, my brother. Assalamu alaikum. I love all you. Thank you. I love all of y'all. This is, a, this is a community right here. This is a village. You know what I'm saying? We are a family. Stay strong, friends. I'll keep doing what y'all do. Thank you. Thank you. Have a good night.